This is a WTOP original podcast. This is Scott Greenberg, your host of the Vine Guy podcast. And today I have a very special guest, Clay Moritzen of Moritzen Wine. Now, Clay was born and raised in the Dry Creek Valley, and he's actually part of a sixth generation of grape growing family. That's pretty cool. Pioneers from Sweden, Clay's family uh, raised merino sheep for wool and planted their first vines on the land they settled in 1868, an area that's now known as the Rockpile AVA. Now, after graduating the University of Oregon in 1997, go Ducks, Clay returned to Sonoma County where he worked at Kenwood Vineyards and later honed his skills alongside winemakers at Jordan Vineyards and Winery, Taft Street Winery, and Dry Creek Vineyards in 1998. He produced his first bottling on the Moritzen label, a Dry Creek Zinfandel. Clay is committed to the philosophy that you need exceptional fruit to make exceptional wine. With more than 350 acres of family-owned vineyards and strong relationships built over decades with other growers, Moritzen has access to some of the best fruit in Sonoma County. Clay has been active in the wine community as well as serving as president of both the Wine Growers of Dry Creek Valley and the Rock Pile Grape Growers Association. He is currently president of the Sonoma County Vintners Board of Directors. While at the University of Oregon, Clay earned a degree in business administration with an emphasis in marketing. Playing outside linebacker for the Ducks, including appearances in the 95 Rose Bowl and the 96 Cotton Bowl, Clay gained discipline and dedication to excellence, which continues to serve him well today and provides the spirit of making great wine and the essence of pursuing perfection. Clay, welcome to the podcast. This is impressive. It is great to be here, Scott. I need to figure out who wrote that bio for me because I'm blushing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say, I don't know what I'm more impressed with. Sixth generation grape growers or outside linebacker you know, for the Ducks. Uh, Sixth generation grape growing is definitely more impressive. Pretty cool, though. It's pretty cool. Hey, it is know. pretty cool. Uh, I, I guess I just have to start there. What was that experience like, being in the Rose Bowl? It was amazing. Um, you know, we had played in the Rose Bowl earlier that year against UCLA for their home game. And it was, I dare say, underwhelming because you walk out into the field and it's a 100,000-seat stadium and there was 45,000 you know, people in the stands. And it was an incredible game, but it didn't have the energy. And I think in some ways that was a, a, a blessing because... You know, I know I didn't have the nerves, and maybe I assume a lot of my teammates didn't have the nerves walking out into the Rose Bowl field because we had just played there, you know, five weeks earlier. But when I walked out of the tunnel, and there are 103,000 people going absolutely nuts. I mean, the hair stands up up on my back thinking about it now. I mean, Mm -hmm. it was it was electric. I have to ask, because I'm not familiar with the 95 Rose Bowl, who were you playing? We played Penn State. Okay. Um, They had an amazing team. Um, That was Kajana Carter and uh, Kerry Collins and Kyle Brady and Joe Jurevicius and Bobby Ingram. I mean, they literally had 11 first-round draft picks off that team over the course of the next three years. Um, We didn't win. (laughs) If, If you were a betting man, you would remember the game because the spread was 18 and we lost by 18. Oh, wow. Um, but I will say that we missed four field goals in the game. Oh, man. We turned the ball over twice inside of their 10-yard line. So we outgained them by like 250 yards during the game. Now, that doesn't mean that we deserve to win. They deserve to win the game. But it was, uh, it was a pretty awesome experience. 
Well, I tell you what you do deserve to win are medals for your wines. They are really <laughs> outstanding. But I, I want to go back in time a little bit. Just tell me about the family history because, come on, sixth generation. I'm, I'm fifth generation uh, on my dad's side from California, but sixth generation, that's, that's impressive. It's pretty impressive. Um, you know, my great-great-great-grandfather, Sven Parker Hollingren. Sven. Sven, who went by SP, um, immigrated uh, to the United States in 1864. Um, you know, came before Ellis Island was even a thing, if you can think about that. Um, stayed in the New York area for, you know, four years approximately, to we can only assume, to learn the language, make some money, and then sailed around the horn of South America to get to California. Wow. It was post-Gold Rush, and so there was unbelievable opportunities there. Um, as my grandmother liked to say, the uh, Wild Wild West was maybe a little too wild for Sven because he didn't end up settling in Sacramento where all the opportunity was for the Gold Rush. Ended up settling in Sonoma County and, um, you know, went in Rome, do as the Romans do. And one of the largest sheep ranches west of the Mississippi was in Sonoma County at that time. And most of the settlers in that area were Italians who were growing grapes. And so Sven homesteaded the first piece of property, raised sheep, and started planting vineyards. And it's a pretty amazing history. Now, fast forward a little bit, you know, so back in the 1800s, he's selling the land, he's growing grapes. At what point... Did this become a business for your family? Was that the next generation or a generation after? You know, I remember I must have been in seventh or eighth grade and I had to write a report on the Great Depression. And part of the book report back then, because there was no internet, you know, you had to use encyclopedias, <laughs> right? Yeah. And no chat ATP. No chat ATP. <laughs> so you had to uh, use uh, encyclopedias and they wanted us to interview someone who had familiarity, if not who had lived through it. And I will never forget asking my grandfather about the Great Depression. And his words were so succinct and yet um, worth a million words. He said, son, we were so poor we didn't know there was a depression. So, and I, I say that because, you know, we were living off the land. And right. without a doubt, growing grapes was the minority part of our income. It was all about raising sheep. But we lived off the land, you know, so we had cattle that we would butcher for food. We had row crops. We had stone fruit. You did whatever you could sell to make money. And so when you had Black Friday and the market crashed, um, there was no run on the bank for us because we didn't have money in the bank. Right. If we had money, it was buried in a mason jar in the backyard. That's a true story. Um, so, you know, when did it become a full-time, you know, proposition for us was in 1968. And 1968 was a devastating year for our family. Um, we lost 3,300 acres of our original homestead to eminent domain because the Army Corps of Engineers decided they wanted to build Lake Sonoma. And it was, I mean, devastating doesn't even begin to describe it. We won't go into all the gory details. Wait, but your land is under, under Lake, Lake Sonoma. Sonoma? Yeah. Yeah, Ooh. we have 700 acres of... I say the original state. You can only homestead so much property at right. time. That was determined by the president at the time. And so we homesteaded as much as we could, and then we purchased neighboring properties. Um, and that's a great story. If we have time, I'll come back to that. But um, our ranch grew to about 4,000 acres, and that was by the turn of the last century. And so 1899, we had accumulated about 4,000 acres of land. And in 1968, we lost 3,300 of that eminent domain. And the reason that forced us full-time into grape growing is because we lost all of our other potential revenue streams. 
We lost all the land to raise livestock on. We lost all the orchards because we had a lot of prunes. Prunes were very prominent at that time. Sure. Lost all the orchards. And with what we were, quote unquote, paid and what we, we were paid about nine cents on the dollar. So we could afford to buy 110 acres in Alexander Valley. And that was all in prunes. But we immediately pulled all that out and put vineyards in. And that is when you have that bellwether shift from being kind of a jack-of-all-trades farmers living off the land to all of our eggs were now in the vineyard basket. Okay, so prunes, hugely popular. Huge. And you're telling me that you guys had the foresight to rip out those prune orchards. And plant vineyards. That's a, what year was that? 1968. Uh, you know, we, 68 is when we lost the property. Okay. 71 is when we planted the vineyards. Still way ahead of the curve. Yeah, but think way about what happened the then, right? Is you, 1968, this really tiny, beautiful winery called Arbor Mandavi opened its doors and forever changed the face of California wine, right? I think Mandavi started in 66, but the tasting room opened in 68. And I mean, that forever changed the face of California wine. Um, Dry Creek Valley became an appellation in 1972. And so there were things that were in, I think it, during that year, there was four big ones. Wasn't it Russian River, Dry Creek, maybe Alexander Valley. But there was a lot of stuff happening in grapes in Sonoma County at that time. And yes, it was betting on the come. There's no doubt about that. But, you know, I think I give credit to my dad because my grandfather was very conservative, very traditional. And my dad realized that you know, there was a ceiling on which you could earn for prunes and grapes. While it was somewhat of an unknown commodity, there was certainly demand there. That's wild. I got to say. And and now when you talk about Mondavi, though, that was on the other side of the mountain. Other side of the mountain, but you know, high tides lift all ships, and yes, Snap and Sonoma are two different places. But two very different ships. There was a lot of. Uh, I'll tell you, back in the seventies, you know, I mean. Let's think about, you know, the great, uh, you know, the um, oh, Judgment of Paris, right? Right. The number one Chardonnay in the world. It might have been on Apple Winery. They were Sonoma County grapes. I mean, everyone knows that. I didn't know that. Bocchalupi, Russian River Chardonnay, was what that Chardonnay was primarily made out of that Montalina made. Yeah. I did not know they were right. Sonoma grapes. Yeah. So we sold a ton of grapes to Napa wineries back then. Behringer, I mean, um, gosh, I'm trying to think of... Uh, um, Oh, it's the one that JCB owns now that's the crazy... Oh, I'll think of it in a second. But we sold a lot of grapes, to Clos de Bois? No. Um, no, it's an apple winery. Um, okay. Oh, gosh. I can see Raymond. Oh, sure. We sold grapes to Raymond from the very beginning until uh, they sold. But that was always kind of... We joked like the dirty little secret is that, you know... Not Napa wineries would come to snow, but I'm talking about in the 70s and even 80s, and it still goes on today, not as much. But Napa made great wine with Sonoma fruit. Yes, there you have it. It's kind of a dirty little secret. Now, you did mention neighboring wineries, and you said you were going to circle back around to it. Sorry, neighboring property. Property. My ancestors, it blows my mind. My my great grandfather, who immigrated here, was 17 years old. Um, He was, you know, dirt poor, and you think about what it must have been like to get on a boat as a 17-year-old and leave everything you knew behind. Like, how terrible those conditions must have been to come to the complete unknown. I often think about that. And for being uneducated and a poor farmer, um, he was incredibly entrepreneurial. And while, you know, you could only homestead so much property at a time, what Sven Barker did is he would go to his neighbor and he'd say, hey, Scott, if you apply for this homestead on this you know, section that neighbors mine, I'll do all the work 
Because in order to homestead it, you had to improve it, you had to farm it, or you had to live on it. So what Sven would do is he would do all the work. He would fence it, he would put cattle or sheep on it, or plant vineyard on it. But we had an agreement, because it was in your name, that when you actually got the deed to the property, you agreed to sell it to me for 50 cents an acre. And most of the transactions were between 50 cents and a dollar an acre. So that's how he was able to grow our estate to 4,000 acres, which is insane to think about the entrepreneurial spirit that he had. And ultimately, I mean, that answers the own question of why would you come to a place like America when it was the unknown, leaving what was essentially a feudal system in Sweden at that time. And, and particularly leaving very populated areas such as Sacramento and San Francisco yeah. at the time and going north to, uh, to use your words, the greater known. Yeah. Yeah, it was, like I said, it was, uh, I mean, there's so many stories. Now we have a limited amount of time, but, you know, uh, a, someone from the Jesse James gang, like a cousin, had property in that area, and it's, like, well known that Jesse James would come hide out in what is now the Rockpile area. You know, I mean, just crazy history back then. And you think about, you know, just the, the visions that that conjures, right? I probably am going to ask a very stupid question, but how did the Rockpile ABA get its name? Um, there's a couple different uh, theories on that. The area's been called Rockpile for, you know, over 100 years. And some people say that it had to do with the, the large rancher there, and he was a local sheriff. And what he would do is when he was trying to, you know, basically build wagon trails on the property, he would take prisoners out of the Sonoma County Jail and have them come up there and work on the property. And so whether you conjured this up, like, you know, breaking rocks or piling up rocks to get them off the wagon trails. Working on the rock pile. Working on the rock pile. And that was how it became. And the Native Americans, who obviously much predated, you know, our family and any of the settlers in that area, referred to it as Cabachana, which meant land of many rocks. And that name came from the fault line that runs right through the rock pile ABA. So it's an extension of the Rogers Creek Fault, which many people have heard about. Rogers Creek is an extension of the Hayward Fault, which is the second most active earthquake fault in north, northern California, next to the San Andreas. Oh, so great place to homestead. Yeah. <laughs> well, what you didn't know wouldn't hurt you back then, right? You know? So your family's been there for generations. Just through your eyes, what do you think is the biggest or most impactful change you've seen to the grape growing industry since you've, you've been around? Wow. Um, mechanization has been a huge aspect, but, you know, I always say that, um, you know, necessity is the mother of innovation. And for many reasons, we have been, you know, driven towards mechanization um, some of it is just labor, labor challenges, labor prices, um, and some of it is, you know, what's happening in our climate. We've got to be able to, you know, farm differently, farm better, farm more efficiently. Um, so I would think that that's been the biggest thing. You know, you still see a lot of the old head prune vines around with no trellising, cool. so yeah. those are still around. But when I look at a vineyard that we would plant 40 years ago and then I look at it today, and why we make the decisions we do in terms of trellising and orientation. Um, a lot of that is driven by, you know, just more efficient farming practices, which essentially comes down to mechanization. And how has climate change affected that? You mentioned climate. I'm wondering, are you growing different varieties these days, or are you growing the same varieties differently? The latter. So, um, 
the answer to the first question, are we growing different varieties? Not yet. Um, are we growing things differently? Absolutely. Um, I believe in the adage that, you know, you think globally, act locally. You know, have the courage to affect change where you can, and hopefully that's a spark that flames a, a fans a flame. So, you know, to me, and I know some people would disagree with this, but there's no better conservationist in the world than independent farmers. Commercial farming is a whole different animal, but right. yeah. when you live off of the land, when that is your sole source of income, right. no one cares more about that dirt and what that dirt can provide than the person who lives off of it. Particularly if your kids are playing in there. Well, when I, people ask me all the time about, you know, to have the conversation around sustainable farming, organic farming, biodynamic farming, and before I get into the details of that, what I tell them is I want you to, to envision this, that every single one of my family members, without exception, immediate family, derives their water from a well. So think about the implications of that. This is where my kids get their drinking water. Right. This is where my brothers, my sister, my nieces, my nephew, my parents, every single one of them gets their water from a well. So you better believe no one cares more about what is going onto the plants, into the soil, than we do. Because that's where my kids get their drinking water. That's where my kids get their bathing water. And I think when you, when you look at it through that simplistic you know, um, lens, it explains a lot about our approach to the land. And um, are we changing? Absolutely we're changing. You know, but my dad has always had an amazing philosophy about protecting the natural resources we have for the next generation. And a really simple example of that is our rock pot property, we have vineyards that are up to 40 degrees slope. Well, we have not a single vineyard that is terraced. Wow. Because when you terrace something, you're really limiting its usefulness for future generations. It's only thing that you're going to grow there is what's growing on that terrace. Right? Right. You know, we could go to Rockpile tomorrow and we could remove all of the grapevines that are there. Please don't. And when, <laughs> No plans to do that. But when the grass grew back, you would never know there was a vineyard there. Right, because if you plant yeah, it with the natural slope, yeah, absolutely, preserving what Mother Nature gave you to work with, and again, another philosophy as ours, why we make so many damn single vineyard wines, is that you know if you're going to focus on a single vineyard aspect of what you do, then you better really do everything in your power to exemplify that site. Right. And so if the slope is southwestern, then why are you going to go in and terrace it and move the vines to the northeast? Because is that really exemplifying that slope, right. that drainage, that specific soil type? So, again, that's just our philosophy, but it's rooted in a desire to make sure no that this intended. land, no pun intended, <laughs> in a desire to make sure that this land, you know, continues to support our family for generations to come because... You know, who knows what we're going to be doing up there in 50 years, in 100 years. But we don't think of our business model in terms of five and 10-year horizons. We always think of our business model in terms of generational. You know, are we making the right decisions now so that the next generation has the opportunity to flourish? So back to your original question, we're not trying not to make knee-jerk reactions. We're not ripping out Cabernet, you know, and planting, you know, um, Garancha, right? right? You know, but are we changing our trellising system? Um, are we going back to split systems, which was kind of the old way of doing things, to create more dapple sun exposure, create more shade? Absolutely. Um, 
and are we using, you know, looking at things like shade cloth and that kind of stuff. Those are the type of, you know, small steps that we're taking to ensure that we can still grow the, the best possible grapes that we can. You mentioned generational, right? Yes. And the next generation. You and I are sitting here in Park City, Utah. This is part of the Red, White, and Snow fundraising event for the National Ability Center. And you are, Clay Moritzen, the honoree winemaker for Red, White, and Snow. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you very it's much. It's a very big deal. It is. But uh, you are here specifically not just to raise money for NAC, but tell me about Brady and why you are so passionate about this. I, my oldest son, uh, Brady, was born with Down syndrome. And, um, you know, it has been the greatest blessing of my life. Um, I can't sit here and blow smoke and say that it hasn't been without challenges sure. and without some you know difficult times for me emotionally. I'm talking about myself now, but um, he has brought so much joy, so much perspective to my life, and he has made me a better human being without a doubt, mm-hmm. a better parent to his other two siblings, a better husband, a better friend. He's made me just a better person. And when we found out about Red, White, and Snow, um, and, and even we knew we knew that it supported the NAC, but honestly, we didn't really know about the NAC. But we heard that there was um, this great wine event that was in Utah. My family loves to ski, and it supported a nonprofit that supported people who were differently able. Great, checks all the boxes for us. So we came out here, and we're just absolutely blown away, blown away by the event, but blown away by the work that the National Ability Center is doing. And we were able to get Brady, and I think that first year for maybe two lessons with the NAC. And I had tried to ski with Brady. I say tried, we got the mountain, but I'm not a ski instructor, and I'm certainly not a ski instructor to um, you know people who learn differently. And so um, we managed to get down the mountain. Um, usually, one of us was in tears. You know? <laughs> so to be able to come out here and have Brady ski with an organization that just intuitively spoke his language and was able to teach him the ski was mind-blowing. The next year we came back, um, and every year since then actually, we've come back and made a whole week out of it. Um, Brady has, has had his third lesson today and just absolutely crushed it. Um, he did eight runs this morning, skied two blues, oh, and wow. to see the joy in his face when he comes up and, Daddy, Daddy, I did two blues today. But Brady's learned to ride a two-wheel bike um, with the NAC. He has done rock climbing, he's done archery, I mean, so many amazing things. And um, I, I just can't say enough about what an incredible organization it is and what it's meant to our family. And so for them to honor me, is it's almost incomprehensible because um, I just feel like they've done so much for me and my family. Um, I, there's no way that I could ever repay that. Well, I'm glad this is audio because I, you can't see the tears welling up in my eyes uh, from this story. And in full disclosure, I am on the board of Red, White, and Snow, and I am thrilled that you are here uh, supporting with the National Ability Center, the NAC, uh, which is just an amazing organization. So I'm very fortunate to meet you. Oh, thank you. But now, it, as great as that story was, it is now time for my favorite part of the podcast. <laughs> What's in your glass? What's in your glass? And you have two bottles in front of us. I got two bottles. Um, All right. You're going to have to take us through this. Yeah, we're going to start with the uh, Dry Creek Zinfandel. Okay. Um, And as you noted in the bio, this was 
the first wine that we ever made. Back in 1998, we only made one wine. color. Which, considering we make 21 wines now, is kind of... 21 wines? 21 wines. What's wrong with you? (laughs) Exactly, right? I need another wine, like I need a whole bit. But back to that notion of single vineyard. Like, I am obsessed with place. You know, I I tell people this all the time, and they just kind of have this light bulb moment. But think about all the things that we consume on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. How many things that we consume do we know exactly when and where it came from that consists of a grand total of one ingredient. You know, I, I think the only thing I could say is that the, the, the time that my wife, the herb time that my yep. wife grows in our garden, that's the only yep. thing I can point to. Right? Right. Yet, every bottle of wine tells you that story, Scott. Every bottle tells you when and where. Now, not every winemaker makes wines the same way. You know, our approach is to have absolute minimal input, which in our world means we don't inoculate, we don't do malolactic, we do everything native. So we make wine using a singular ingredient, and that's grapes. I love this news. Cheers. Wow. So Dry Creek's in. When you are born and bred in Dry Creek Valley for over 150 years and six generations, it's what you do, right? Oops, I swallowed. (laughs) Sorry. That is delicious. That is a beautiful wine. Wow, what a burst of fruit. The acidity, Acid, the balance, structure. the structure. Yeah. That's, um, wow. I, you know, I, I need something. I, I need like elk chili. Yes. <laughs> yes. That is amazing. I, that's why I make a day with elk chili. Those blue and red fruits that just hit you right up front. Yep. So about 7% petite Syrah on that. So that's some of that okay. blue fruit. Yeah. Um, one of the really unique things about the rock pile appellation is that the majority of the rock pile AVA overlaps with the dry creek AVA. Wow. For us, that's a really big deal because anything that doesn't make it into our single vineyard rock pile bottlings, mm-hmm. we can essentially declassify and use in our dry creek zim. So this has about 40% rock pile fruit in it, but it is wholly contained within the Dry Creek AVA. Yeah, so you just make it a, a, a Dry Creek. Yep, exactly. Uh, an AVA wine. Um, it's also, you know, we take a lot of pride in this wine because it's one of the only wines we make that's not 100% estate. And I say we take pride in that because when you've been growing grapes for as long as my family has in Dry Creek Valley, sometimes we can buy better grapes than we can grow. Wow, that is just delicious. Just out of curiosity, what is this, uh, what is this run a bottle? Uh, $40. Yeah. Come on. Really? I know. That's a beautiful bargain right there. All right, let's uh, wine number two. I hate to, boy, I hate to leave that one. I can't wait to try the rock pile. So we're switching gears to Cabernet. Okay. And wine number two is a single vineyard wine. It's kind of one of our commitments to my family's heritage up there, but also just the unique nature of the rock pile ABA is we only make single vineyard wines from rock pile. So we, on the original 52 acres that we planted up there, we had 13 different varietals, 17 different blocks. Okay, that's confusing. It's confusing, and it absolutely is. But to see it is, you know, to understand it. We have elevations that range from 800 feet to 1,400 feet in elevation. We have every conceivable sun exposure imaginable. We have slopes as gentle as 7 degrees, as I mentioned earlier, up to 40 degrees slope. So every single one of these nuances yields a different characteristic. Um, Zinfandel, no doubt, reigns supreme in Rockpile in terms of its planted acreage. About 65% of the AVA is planted to Zin. 
But in my humble opinion, Rockpile will end up hanging its hat on Cabernet. Well, I, you know, I, I've had a lot of zins from Rockpile. Mm-hmm. I don't recall having a Cabernet from Rockpile. So this is going to be the first for me. It is, uh, you know, we have other stations all over our vineyards. The most similar site in terms of its diurnal shift, average daily high, average daily low, is Howl Mountain. Ooh, that's yummy. So we're a little bit warmer, but you have mm. this just unbelievable place to grow Bordeaux varietals. We grow all five mm. um, in this vineyard. Is this 100% Cab or no, is there something else in there? So this is uh, Cabernet, Malbec, Merlot, and Cabernet Franc. It, it, this, is, this is just beautiful. Isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know what I? The first thing that hits me uh, uh, with this one is the structure. Right up, right up front, I'm just getting this beautiful uh, sort of interwoven textures and fruit. And again, the tannins are are beautiful. Mm -hmm. They're really well integrated in this wine. So it's no uh, no coincidence that um, <laughs> I was the winemaker for the first <laughs> 20 years, but we've had this uh, amazingly talented young lady working with us since 2010. Well, 2011 was her first harvest with us. But um, Emma Kadriski Hall is now the winemaker. We promoted her in 2019. So you're tasting a 19 and a 21. And I would say the biggest difference between Emma's winemaking style and mine is that Emma does a much better job with tannin management. Wow. These tannins are so incredibly well integrated. And it's funny because sometimes too much of a good thing can be a bad thing. Right. And I was to, if I was to say, what is our biggest challenge in rock pile? It's that we have too much phenolics. And it's almost comical to think that that's a potential negative thing, right. but you have to manage that. And Emma does a beautiful job managing mm-hmm. our extraction. It's, yeah, gorgeous cabinet. Yeah, congratulations, Emma, taming those tannins. Yeah. <laughs> She's a tannin. <laughs> She's a tannin tamer. <laughs> Say that fast three times after a glass of this. That is a beautiful wine. Really just beautiful. And you know what else is beautiful is the story you've told about your family, your family's legacy, and most importantly, about Brady and why you were here this week. I cannot thank you enough. Uh, Scott, it's my pleasure. We are so honored to be a part of this event. Um, Honored to be on podcast with you. Just uh, life is good. Life is good. Life is good. Cheers, my friend. Cheers. Cheers.